0: So I'm going to ask you a question today. How, how many of you have heard of the phrase mountaintop experience? Yeah, okay. Now, now how many of you have had at some point in your life uh, what you'd consider to be a mountaintop experience? Okay. All right. You know, and, and those can take a lot of different forms. For, uh, for some of us, that day uh, may have been the day that you graduated from high school or, or from college. Uh, maybe it was when you got married uh, or not. I'm only saying that because my wife is over teaching Sunday school, so she can't hit me Uh, Maybe it's the day you became a parent for the first time or not Uh, Or maybe it's when you earned that promotion or you uh, finally got your dream job Uh, And it's in those moments in our lives where there's just such a a great sense of joy uh, And of celebration and of happiness And that feeling like you're just gonna burst if you don't share it uh, with someone And you never want that feeling to end. And those are all great. And I I really I hope that all of you have had hundreds of moments like that. But the mountaintop experience that I want us to look at today and talk about today uh, is just a little bit different uh, because today we're going to be talking about a mountaintop experience with God, Uh, an experience that will shake not only the foundations of the earth but will impact the very heights of heaven uh, and it all starts in Psalm 82 today. And so if you want to join me there, we're continuing in our series through the book of Psalms. We're almost done with the Psalms of Asaph. So if you're tired of Asaph, he's only got one more. <laughs> uh, but this is a Psalm of Asaph. And he writes uh, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the precious promises of your word. We thank you for the gift of these psalms that we've been reading through and studying through. Because not only... Uh, Are they a book of the Bible that was written uh, to inspire us? They're a book of the Bible that directs us to speak words of praise uh, and hope and supplication and mourning back to you. And so, Father, uh, we ask that uh, you'd be uh, with me as I open these verses before us, that you would be with all of our hearts and minds here, that you would uh, send to us today, Father, whatever message you will to send forth, and that we will receive it joyfully and obediently in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, there's a lot of, really a lot of elements going on in this really pretty short psalm. Uh, the first one is a vision of the the courts of heaven, and not not like the judicial courtroom scenes that you might imagine from uh, television dramas, but a royal court, a, a royal court whose courtiers are the angels and and the archangels and the the seraphim and all of these celestial powers. Uh, the court above that symbolically plays out here on earth in the work of of monarchs and prime ministers and presidents and public officials uh, who the bible says exercise the imputed authority of god to govern and manage this planet in his name Uh, and in fact our lord jesus makes reference to that uh, in the gospel of john chapter 10 but i'll leave that part for you to search out on your own because the element that i want us to focus on today is just a single verse of psalm 82 and actually just the last half Uh, verse 5 that says all the foundations of the earth are shaken and talking about the fact that that happens when the glory of the God of heaven interacts with his creatures here below Uh, and really the first instance of that is at at Mount Sinai where Moses receives the Ten Commandments and if you remember the story it was pretty dramatic, right? With the, the thunder lightning, fire and the tangible earth-shaking presence of the holiness of the Lord that sent his people falling back in fear at the realization of the gigantic gulf between the righteousness of God and of God's holy laws and of the sinfulness of the people's hearts and then we we read there about as as Moses steps forward to be their go-between their their mediator with God and he stands between God and the people to receive from the Lord the regulation of the animal sacrifices. Sacrifices that would serve as kind of a, a placeholder uh, or a symbol, of, a prophetic foreshadowing of the greater sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make on our behalf uh, to provide us a forgiveness that really animal sacrifices could only illustrate until the Messiah came. And then that that thought, that idea kind of links us ahead to another dramatic Jarring mountaintop encounter between Earth and heaven that comes to us from the weekly lectionary, from the readings there, uh, that jump into the life of Jesus at a very particular moment, and that's at the scene of the Transfiguration. And I'm just going to read you uh, a very short section of that from Matthew chapter 17. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew tells us uh, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers James and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling and white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. And Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Listen to Him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. And then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, He said, Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. And so just to kind of unpack this a little bit for you you know in the uh, if you think about the educational system whether it's public school or private school or college or trade school the more involved that students are with the subject matter you know the the more visible and tangible it is the better they remember it and understand it right well I, I would have to say that the transfiguration in our reading would certainly qualify as a practical firsthand visual lesson wouldn't it Uh, And in today's reading, Peter, James, and John are led into a firsthand knowledge of Jesus uh, that they will never forget. And and they come away from that experience with a very real, a a very concrete sense of who Jesus is, uh, as they witness a sight that it may not have literally uh, rocked the mountain in this case, but it shook these men to the very depths of their being. Uh, One that, that changed Jesus' whole appearance as for just a moment, the glory of the Godhead shone through, and the disciples saw Jesus literally in a whole new light. They saw God in the flesh. In fact, uh, two of them were still writing about it in their final days on earth. Uh, the Apostle John, when he was close to 90 years old, wrote about it in the first chapter of his gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Simon Peter, just before he was martyred, wrote in the first chapter of his second letter, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, he says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father the voice from the majestic glory of god said to him this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy uh, and we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain and, and you know when peter writes about that when he he writes about that scene it's as if he's remembering it like it just happened yesterday right uh, because how, how could you ever forget a moment like that but you know as absolutely incredible as that voice from heaven must have been and the the Lord's transformation was that wasn't the only thing that happened that day. There was kind of one more miracle, one that's that's tucked in between those two, uh, and one that would have shaken up everything that the disciples thought they knew, and that was the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Remember, we just read suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus, and then, of course, Peter, always the first to speak, jumps up and says, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here if you want to... I'll make three shelters, one for you, and one for for Moses, and one for Elijah. It's a pretty pretty dramatic moment, right? But what I want to know is, how did Peter recognize who Moses and Elijah were? Uh, How did he know that's who they were? Moses, if you think about it, by that time was dead about 1,400 years. Uh, Elijah had been gone up into heaven something like 900 years. Uh, And yet Peter and the other two disciples knew who they were. But how did they do that? Well, then this is just my opinion. My opinion is because they were experiencing kind of a taste uh, of the coming kingdom where the Bible says we will be known even as we are known. Uh, where, where we'll know and be known by everyone. Uh, and I think Peter was experiencing that. But look, let's look at what his reaction was, right? Uh, in the text, when Peter recognized who Moses and Elijah were, what was his reaction? His immediate response uh, seeing Jesus transfigured with his face shining like the sun and uh, hearing the voice of the Almighty and seeing arguably the two greatest prophets that ever lived, uh, his reaction was to want to build three little shelters, to, to build three booths, to just camp, camp right out there on the mountain. But what did he do that for? What's he really suggesting here? Well, I believe he had in mind... Uh, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, and I'm going to take just a minute and explain to you why. If you're familiar with it, it was a feast that God had given to the uh, people through Moses while they were still in the earth-shaking presence of the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, where Exodus 23 tells us, uh, each year you must celebrate three festivals in my honor. First, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. And we know, of course, that uh, that's Passover that became our Lord's Supper that we celebrate. It continues, second, celebrate the festival of harvest when you bring me the first crops. And that was later called the Feast of Pentecost. And finally, we're told celebrate the festival of ingathering, or the festival that was later called uh, shelters, or the festival of tabernacles. Uh, and here's just real quickly the instructions for how they were to celebrate this ingathering uh, and the reason that it has that name of tabernacles. Leviticus 23 tells us for seven days you must live outside in little shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. And so you see building these little, these little booths was nothing new for the people of Peter's day. Uh, they'd already been doing it for like over a thousand years. Uh, and in fact, they're still still doing it today. If you know any observant Jewish folks, you can see them put up uh, these little shelters in their yards or on patios. Uh, depending on the year anytime from late september to late october Uh, and they're supposed to recall israel's hastily built lodgings in the wilderness and god's provision for them as they traveled as as strangers and and pilgrims in the exodus Uh, and so even though peter was maybe a little bit hasty uh, here in wanting to build three of these sheds on the mountaintop he wasn't crazy Uh, he was really on to something because the transfiguration of jesus is in a sense the ultimate fulfillment of that ancient festival the fulfillment that god would dwell that he would he would tabernacle he would pitch his tent right here among his people in the incarnation just exactly like john told us in john 1:14 he said the word became flesh and he made his dwelling here among us he he pitched his tent he took up residence right here on planet earth with us so that that he who who put the planets in place the one that keeps them spinning the The God who called forth stars and and seas and mountains and hills, Uh, the one who made all the creatures that live on the earth our holy God, became incarnate and came here in the flesh. He tended his glory in humanity uh, and allowed himself to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary for us. Uh, And there's another important element of that festival not to miss too, because It wasn't just about the physical produce of the harvest that they were celebrating. Uh, It was also meant to foreshadow the spiritual harvest at the end of the age. Uh, So it's more than just a reminder of past deliverance in the wilderness uh, because these tabernacles pointed ahead to a time when the people of all nations would flock to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Uh, In Sunday school class, we've been talking about that a lot in our study of Revelation. Uh, But we're told uh, in Zechariah 14, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. The survivors of all nations will go up to Jerusalem each year to worship the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, and to celebrate that festival of shelters. And so what Peter is thinking here, what what he had in mind when he made that request of Jesus to build these three shelters, well, Peter was pushing for the millennial kingdom to begin right then. He's ready. He's ready. He's ready to shake up the world system. He's ready to rock the foundations of the world governments because he knows that passage from Zechariah. He knows his messianic implications, and he wants basically the kingdom come to come right now. But as always, he was kind of jumping the gun a little bit and running out ahead of God's plan, wasn't he? You can't blame him. But you know, if you notice in his eagerness, he kind of interrupted an important conversation, didn't he? a conversation that was going on between Jesus and and Moses and Elijah. And wouldn't you just love to overheard what they were saying? Wouldn't you love to know exactly what Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about? Uh, You know, I would, but my my wife always tells me, and she's the one that picks out these pictures. uh, She always tells me I'm the most curious person on the planet. uh, Because I always want to know the story behind the story. And I, I really hope that's the kind of curious she meant when she was talking about me. But, but I, I, really did, I really did want to know, uh, and for that we have to kind of go pick up a piece of this story from the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 9, and I know I'm throwing a lot of scriptures at you, uh, and this first section is just a little bit of a recap, but Luke tells us that Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking to Jesus. But now here's the part I don't want you to miss. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. So now we know what they were talking about. Uh, And it says they spoke to him about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem, referring, of course, to his death. And you know that word exodus is is never used anywhere for death in the scriptures except for here. Uh, The Old Testament uses the word exodus to describe bringing the people of Israel out of slavery uh, into the promised land. But here, Moses representing that Old Testament deliverance spoke to Jesus about another kind of exodus. An exodus accomplished by his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, And you know that's really what Jesus did for us, right? Uh, He brought us out of slavery to sin and accomplished our exodus into the promise of God's kingdom. I mean, now, admittedly, the text there doesn't give us the exact words that Moses said, but, you know, in that context, if you use your sacred imagination, you can almost picture Moses saying, Lord, the time's almost here. The time for you to fulfill that law that was given to me on Mount Sinai. The law that requires the death of a substitute for a sinner. The law that says in Leviticus 17, it's the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible and and so he he may have said lord you know every ceremony every every type every sacrifice under the old covenant it all pointed to you and now that time is here and without your death lord there's no forgiveness of our sins you can maybe you know use your same sacred imagination and picture elijah who represented the old testament prophets looking ahead to messiah uh, and maybe as he spoke to jesus he could have said something like You know, Lord, since the beginning, all the prophets, including myself, pointed to your work of redemption. We pointed to it through the miracles you allowed us to do, and the zeal you gave us for your people, and for the future hope of salvation that you held out before us, and we foreshadowed your experience in the wilderness, and we prefigured your mountaintop experiences here, and we preached through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Son of God must suffer for the sins of His people. Just like you had Isaiah write for us in his scroll when he said, For all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on on you the iniquity of us all. Uh, And that's only by your stripes, Jesus, that we're healed. It's only by your wounds that we're healed. Uh, And so that's the, the really important conversation that Peter interrupts. But before Peter could finish what he was saying, God the Father interrupted him. Because we read... Even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And I love this part. He said, Listen to him. In other words, Peter, like you're too busy speaking. Listen to him. And the disciples were terrified, and they fell face down on the ground. And then Jesus came over and touched them. And he said, Get up. Don't be afraid. And so in the same way that the disciples knew who Moses and Elijah were, they knew who that voice was that was speaking to them from heaven. They didn't have to ask. They knew that they were in God's presence. And even more frightening, they knew that they were sinners in God's holy presence. And when they heard God speak, they were afraid. But what I want to tell you this morning is the transfiguration story was not meant to scare them or us into trusting and believing in God. Because just look at how quick Jesus was to reassure them. You know, Jesus didn't reveal his glory to put the fear of God into his followers. He did it to confirm their faith. And Jesus revealed his glory to show his disciples that, that his words are true. And Peter and James and John learn hands-on just who this Messiah is. So that's what the transfiguration of Jesus is all about because after that they knew for a fact now that they could believe Jesus and everything he had told them. So much so that the disciples would be willing to die a martyr's death rather than deny the truth of what they saw. Uh, And you know, that's what it means for us too. Jesus is showing us that we can believe in His Word in this and a thousand other ways. And He leaves us no doubt that He is the Son of God, that He's our Messiah, and that He is worthy of our highest trust and our fullest faith. Not, Not just when we're on the mountaintop, but always. And I think the last verse of that reading today proves that when we read, and when they, Peter, James, and John looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus. Because now that they knew what they knew about him, they knew they wouldn't have to climb mountains anymore to be with God. Because he was right there with them the whole time. They knew they didn't have to navigate mountains of commandments or try to scale the heights of obscure prophecy. Uh, they knew now that the days of needing a Moses or Elijah to stand between them and God were past, and now the Scripture said they saw only Jesus. Uh, and brothers and sisters, may we say the same this morning. This morning as we've climbed together to the top of God's mountain spiritually to witness this transfiguring Christ, uh, and in that moment where we can be assured that this truly is God's beloved Son, and that you and I need to hold on to that fact as we go out this week at, uh, as we head back down the mountain and out into the world uh, to this week begin our Lenten journey this coming uh, Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday night. Reminding ourselves uh, with the ashes of the frailty of our human nature as we move closer and closer to that sacred moment when the death and life meet on another mountain. Uh, a spot called Mount Calvary where our own journey of faith intersects with the life and death of Jesus Christ Christ as we prepare to begin our 40-day voyage of Lent that leads us to the cross. And so I invite you to come along with us. You'll be in good company as we climb toward that mountain together, beginning this Wednesday night. Amen? Father God, we thank you so much for your great and precious promises. We thank you for your Son, uh, who the disciples saw transfigured before you on the mountain. Uh, We thank you, Father, too, for the confirmation that We don't need anyone to stand between us and God. We can come directly to you, Lord, because you're standing there all the time waiting to comfort us, to receive us, uh, and to let us know that we can live in peace. And so be with us as we go this week into the world, and let us give you honor and glory in all that we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.